we share in the word this morning, would you join me in prayer? Father, again coming to you this morning, rejoicing in the reality that the God of all creation is our Savior. Thank you. As we open your word this morning, Lord, we thank you that we have it to open. Lord, we thank you that we're in a place and time where we're free to open it. We pray for all of the churches around the world this day that have met, that are cloistered sometimes in very quiet and dark places because uh, they have to be secret even in order to meet together to share in your word. We ask your blessing and covering all of those who are persecuted and suffered in your name. But this morning we rejoice and say thank you for our freedom. And as a result, Lord, cause us to take advantage of that. And as we, we open your word this morning to, to ask through your Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts and our minds that we would receive from you what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, be sharing with you from Second uh, Peter, uh, the first chapter, uh, as we start to talk about the gift of prophecy. And uh, as we do, reminder came out of Romans chapter twelve, verse eight, that you know that prophecy is one of the gifts that God has given the church, and for. You know, I guess it's one, you start with this kind of a picture. When you think of prophet, you know, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind? Hmm? Telling the future. My ears are plugged or something. Telling the future. Okay, someone who tells something that is, is going to happen. Certainly we see that in Scripture from, from literally the very beginning of Scripture and, you know, prophetic words. Uh, of, of uh, the coming of a Savior in Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, we see God's prophetic word at work that way. What else comes to mind? What do you picture? You know, sometimes people have a picture. When somebody says prophet, what kind of a picture comes into your mind? A holy man, okay. I was accused of looking like a, 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 some old prophet coming out of the Old Testament when I showed up at a meeting once. You know, and uh, I think I made a few people nervous, uh, but uh, I, I, I actually, one of them jokingly, and I assured them that that wasn't my gift. Um, but, uh, you know, understanding prophecy, for me, I need to, to, in order to share with you where I'm coming from when I speak about prophecy, uh, I'm going to take you down, I guess, what I would call my trail and uh, show you why I think and feel the way I do. And so we're going to have to go, we're going to start with 2 Peter, but we're going to also find ourselves looking at several scriptures this morning. 2 Peter is uh, uh, chapter 1, uh, starting with uh, the 16th verse. Peter, speaking about the prophetic word and God's glory, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to, uh, to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A lot of information there. Uh, verse 16, just starting with that, uh, he's basically saying to make our Lord Jesus Christ known to you, referring to his power uh, and his, I believe it's tying it into the picture of his second coming. He says, we didn't share with you any cleverly devised myths. And what he's referring to here is some people think, well, he did, you know, we weren't false teachers. Actually, in the, in the, in the culture uh, in the, of, of, of many of the Gentile cultures, uh, and certainly within the framework of the Roman-influenced ones, they had a way of presenting the stories of their gods. We call it today, by the way, we use the word what? Mythology, okay? But very detailed stories acted out on stage. And, and they were quite clever <laughs> in the sense of, of uh, the way that they would come across, the things that they would portray, and uh, trying to portray. And then some of these actual plays, if you will, the, 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 they were even reserved for an elite group of knowledgeable people uh, so that only a few had the super knowledge of what was going on uh, as far as some of the details of their gods. And so Paul saying, we didn't, or Peter saying, we didn't do anything like that. We didn't come up and, and give you a bunch of weird stories. We didn't come up here and present some cleverly devised ways to, to share with you Stories of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of man you know, uh, trying to relate to a god. The mystery of the gods was part of that picture. He said, we didn't need to make up stories, was the implication. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We don't have to make up a story. <laughs> Let us tell you what we saw. What we saw with our own eyes about God. This is extremely important because this is not the claim that the Greek and, and the Roman philosophers and teachers of mystic religions and mystery gods and all this stuff were saying. Peter was making an exceptional claim here. We are eyewitnesses of what we have shared with you. And he had a very specific account in mind because he talks about the mountain God speaking, and this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So in order to, to catch the fullness of that, we flip back to Matthew chapter 17. The Mount of Transfiguration is the, the typical title for the story, and uh, we just will pick it up with verse 1 and keep it in full context here. Matthew 17, 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Extremely important to, to get this picture. Tremendous light, okay? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah, also extremely important in this picture, Taking with him, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one of, uh, for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud, again, bright cloud, overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Powerful, powerful testimony and witness to Peter, James, and John of who the Christ is. Now, and understand, Peter, just, in the, the, just a little bit prior to this, had made the confession that when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? First off, kind of like, who do people talk about me? What do they think? And then he says, but who do you, talking to them, say? And Peter says, boldly, he says, well, you're the son of God, <laughs> basically. And, and Jesus says, well, that's not something you figured out on your own, and that's not something anybody around here has told you. That's something directly from God. You've had a revelation, Peter. Uh, you, you, you know something that, that is uh, about me. And, and, and as a result, I, it's almost like that opened the door to this next experience. Okay, they're ready to see a little bit more. So they saw this specific thing that they saw. And this is what, what he's talking about when he's speaking here in, in, in Second Peter and he's writing here. Uh, that, that, that we saw this with our own eyes. We were eyewitnesses to it. And notice that the picture of, of the, the, the three people outside of themselves, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, in his glory for the moment, transfigured, in other words, his glory that should be his. This is the way he should have been seen for the very point he came on earth if you want to, to, to look at it to the point of the idea of what he should have, from my perspective, you know, he should have just came down and said, here, man, who, who wouldn't fall on their knees and look at it? Someday they're going to see this and they are going to fall on their knees. But he came because he wanted to save us. He, he came in a whole other fashion. So what we have here is to see him in his glory, but also the reality, he is the sacrifice. He is, just keep that in mind, he is the sacrifice. Uh, he, he told, he said, Jesus said it very clearly, he's the completion of the law. I am, I'm, I'm not doing away with any of the law. In fact, we'll look at that verse in just a minute. I'm not doing anything away. I am the completion of it. Interesting picture. When the Jews would speak of Moses, they also were speaking of the law. Whenever you hear the word, the law and the prophets, they were referring to Moses and the first recorded prophet, even though he has nothing written of him, you know, on himself, he has written about Elijah. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses re represents the law. And so there's the law, the prophet, and the sacrifice. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, all in one picture, and God blessing it. Uh, that is an, a powerful, powerful thing to be able to claim. And this is what Peter's saying. We saw that. Peter's recalling this, you know, with that very specific picture. We heard his voice. We heard the voice of God. We didn't, we, we're not relying on someone who says, uh, I, I had a vision or a dream. He says, we, we heard the voice of God. We saw what happened there. And he says, uh, as a result of this, verse 19, he says, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. There's a lot of questions about exactly what this means, but I, I, try, to try, to, I try to keep things simple. We have something more sure. In other words, I feel he's saying, we understand something even better now that we know who Jesus is. We understand the prophetic word a lot better. The reason why I feel that way is about how Jesus refers to it himself, and we'll share that later on in, in, in the, the message this morning. He says, but we have the prophetic word. You know, the word that is a lamp in a dark place. I like that picture. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little. You know, the, the, the word that's in a lamp, the, the, the lamp in a dark place. That comes out of Psalm 119, one, uh, verse 105. You know, a lamp unto uh, uh, my feet, a light unto my path. Anybody who's involved with, with uh, uh, any of the Christian groups, uh, whether it be... Uh, Christian schools or, or uh, uh, Awanas and others, I all know that scripture. You know, uh, they, I will make it a, a light unto my feet, a, lam or a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. But even tied into that, and you look through Psalm 119, there is even a greater light than that lamp. And I, and I was trying to figure out how to explain this. And, 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 I have to be candid with you. I found this when, with somebody else's explanation of when a light comes into a room. But, but you know how it works. You're going into a dark room with a light. But this isn't that picture. This is a light that's already there, okay? But a lamp, I have a, a lamp on my desk, and, so, and it's and it got a neck on it, and, and it comes out so that you, it shines right over what I'm reading. The further away I get from that lamp, the less light I am experiencing into the position that I'm in. I can actually get out into the uh, outside of my house, have my window open, which it normally is when I'm sitting at that desk, and, and I can see the lamp, I can see the light, I can even see the glow, but it's not casting any light where I am. You could turn the light off, in fact, and I would actually be brighter, possibly, than, and see clearer than I am looking at a distance at that light. And the further away you get, the, the less light even, you know, to the point. But you can, interesting thing about a lamp, you can be a way far away and still see a glimmer. Isn't that amazing? And so the word up to this point has been a light into my, it's very fixed. It's a lamp to my feet. I can see my feet and I can see the path. And the idea is I can see the steps ahead of me. How far ahead? No, just ahead of me, not way down the road. I can see ahead of me. And this is what God's word is to us. And so there is a time, though, when there is a great light that's going to come, and it'll obscure all of that. In fact, the light is going to be so powerful that there won't be any shadows. 
Now, they tried to put light in here to it in such a way that shadows are minimized as to when you kind of look around, especially when you're up here. And I, if I put my hand, no matter where I put it, I can't put a full shadow over the pulpit so that I can see my notes, I can read. You know, so there, but if I work at it, I can still create, there's the shadow, you know. Uh, there, but there, I won't be able to do that. There's a point in time where I won't be able to create that kind of, the light will diffuse all darkness. Of course, we know that's eternal, second coming of Christ. But the neat thing is, even in the prophetic picture coming out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, guess what, folks? There is a light greater than the lamp itself. There is a light coming into the world, into the darkness. And it's going to be the light of men. John, in, first John, in John chapter 1, talks about the word, the light, coming into the world. That's referring to the first coming of Christ. But the ultimate picture will be the second coming of, light, Christ, uh, a second coming of Christ when, when darkness is just put aside completely. All, you know, the, the, any hint of darkness, any hint of sin, gone forever, eternally. I think the obvious thing would be, you know, okay, Peter, how can we trust this? How, how come you so, you're so confident about this? How can we trust it? Well, it says, first, I'm an eyewitness to something God has done. But also, he says in verse 20, knowing this first of all. In other words, this is like a number one principle that, that, that Peter's going to start with in understanding things of God. He says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophet or scripture, prophecy or scripture, comes from someone's own opinion, their own interpretation, their own way they think God should be. God is, and he has revealed himself the way it is, and that's it. There's a whole movement that's very comfortable with kind of a, that God as you know him kind of thing from, from the ex one point where however you want to see Christ, you just want to see him as a great teacher, that's cool. You want to see him as, as, as a, uh, a, a martyr, a revolutionary, you know, however you want to perceive him, that's fine. As long as you acknowledge, yeah, that puts you in the Christian camp. That's not what the Word of God says, but that's kind of this way that people get. That's their opinion. We cannot base eternity on an opinion, and that's really what he's saying. You know, we're, we can't, you know, on some man's interpretation, on some man's idea of who God is, forget it. That's no safe place to be. And, boy, there were a whole bunch of people even calling themselves Christians at the time of Peter and Paul and, and these guys and John called Gnostics is the ultimate name. They weren't called necessarily that right then. But, and that was the idea of, of uh, if you just have this super knowledge about God, you're, you're, you're A-okay, hunky-dory on the way to glory, and, and everything's going to be fine. And just let us tell you what this is. And it was their opinion, their ideas, their concepts. None of it from, from God's word. Peter's making a very specific claim. 
the origination of God's word is himself. It's the number one principle he starts with. The number one thing where we're going to go, he says, there's no one's interpretation, no one's opinion. It's not the will of some man speaking. It's not the, the, the history of some man's search. Now, I have shared with you uh, multiple times from the pulpit my quest, my search to know who God is. At that point in time, there's nothing <laughs> prophetic inspired necessarily about that other than the fact that we, you, hopefully you can see things that God has done in my life to direct me towards him. And, and as I share that with you, sometimes like experiences, sometimes, you know, you say, oh, that's, that's really neat how God did something, took something negative and turned it into something great and all the different kinds of things that we can share in our testimony and our experiences. But that's not scripture. So it's not my searching. It's, 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 it's not my reasoning. As I stand here teaching to you this morning, it's still the reasoning that I have done based on acquired education, it's time spent reading the word, time spent studying the word, and this type of thing. But I, quite candidly, you know, you, you can't leave here and thus saith the Lord, quoting me. Well, I, I wish we could, we, we could ignore that and just think that that's the way it is. But, it, man, I'll tell you what, I, I, I recall now, now you've got to understand, uh, in the in the seventies, there was a great movement, you know, uh, that the, that was going on in the church, uh, um, and it was uh, Basic Youth Conflicts was its name. The leader of it was a man by the name of Bill Gothard. It made such an, an important moment in my life as far as dealing with some things in my walk. I was a brand new Christian. Kathy and I were, we we traveled distances to go to this. And I wouldn't trade what I got from that seminar for anything. But I'll tell you what, I'm not a Garthodite. There's a lot of places I don't agree with some of the things, especially as I matured, saw some different ways of looking at things, and said, yeah, I don't agree with, with what he said here. But boy, what he said here was right on target. What was I using to figure this out? The Bible. I can see where he says this, but I can't see where he says that. Bill Gothard, by the way, was the last person. He made it so clear. He says, please don't leave here quoting me. I recall Chuck Smith saying the same thing at a conference. Please, you guys. You guys are always getting into your sermons and saying, and Chuck Smith said. He said, if you, if you need to give me a quote or a reference because I looked up something and did the studying and you're copying it, okay. Then that's fair. But don't just say Chuck Smith says. And I, almost every scholarly Bible teacher that's gotten great exposure tries to bring across that same point. Don't be a Smithite. Don't be a Goddardite. You know, don't be a Bobite. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, well, it's harder to say how good I tell you. So, uh, you know, this idea of, 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 you know, God has spoken. This is where we want to go. He said, these men spoke from God. And it says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea of being carried along is to be moved and compelled by a force outside themselves. 
In other words, something from the outside coming into their lives, and, and he makes it really clear who it is, what this force is. It's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God, the Spirit of God. So you, 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 as you look at this, the next question for me as I put in things the way I do it in my notes, okay, well, how important is all of this that I've that's said so far? And for me, it takes me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, in his writings to the Ephesians, is trying to get the people to see the, the, the idea of unity in Christ, in the body of Christ. Ephesians is one of the, the books of the Bible that you look at, which really explains the idea of what, what's supposed to be going on in the church. It's a good book to read when you want to see how the church is, is, is to you know, kind of get a picture of how it's to look, how it's to act, and interrelate, especially that concept that Jesus puts out. They're going to know you by your love okay, for one another. They're going to know you're Christians because how you treat each other. Ephesians really gets into how to do that. So Paul, when he's speaking here, to, or writing to them in, in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You were. You were aliens, enemies to God, and all these other things. He says, but now, because of the blood of Christ, you, know, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Now, this is the key built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The foundation that you see here is the apostles and the prophets. And I believe he is referring to the apostles and the prophets in the context of, of, of the prophets as a whole picture. Old Testament, yes, he could be inferring the New Testament prophets as well, but he's very specifically referring to those people who have had a, an experience from outside the Lord where they have said this, thus saith the Lord experience, and they have been compelled and pulled along by the Holy Spirit to share this. And that is the foundation of the church with Christ at its cornerstone, the apostles, the prophets. I couldn't help but thinking in the old, te in the new, in, in in Revelation, where it says there's two sets of twelve of two, two sets of twelve thrones, Old Testament uh, 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 tribes, I think, and, and you know, and, and so Old Testament and New Testament, and 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 together that makes that clear whole picture with Christ as the cornerstone. And you know, you can look at it that way. But the idea, more than anything else, is that. That, 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 that you have Jesus as the cornerstone with the apostles and the prophets providing the foundation. What is our responsibility as the body of Christ to do now? We, we Peter uses another picture uh, in his writings. We are a particular kind of stone. Does anybody know what kind of stones we are? Living stones being fashioned together to be the building on what? The foundation provided by the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. You understand the cornerstone is simply the measuring stone that causes everything else to be in proper order, structure, and, and strength. Without the cornerstone, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have a, an, an accurate and strong foundation. Cornerstone, Christ, cornerstone, 
prophets and apostles together. And I, th- I was thinking, okay, this is, this is also familiar because uh, Paul writes to, to, to Timothy uh, about, again, the importance of prophets and the word of God. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable but for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that man, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. When it says all scripture is breathed out by God, how did we get it? How did we hear it? It's breathed out by him. How did we get it? By the inspired writing of the prophets, of the apostles, those that God called to put it together from the Holy Spirit coming from inside out, compelling them and bringing them along. We have, a, a, in, a, in a Reformed context, we have an absolute key thing that we say that makes Protestantism separated from Catholicism and, and, and everything else. We say as Protestants that, well, the, 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 the Latin phrase, and boy, I'm not a Latinist at all, okay? Uh, sola Scriptura. Scripture only. When we, as a group, come together, when we're working on our bylaws in church, we say, this is the rule of life. This is the, the, the order of life. This is the handbook of life. This and this alone. No man, I don't mean to be unkind, no pope, no president of a board, I don't care what group you look at, supersedes this book in any way, shape, or form. That is how we are. How, then, then, then how important is it that this is the prophetic word of God given to us by the apostles and the prophets, that this is, that this is God-breathed? Well, it's essential. It's the thing we, we, we start off with in the sense of who we are. We're who he says we are. He's who he says he is. Where did we get that information? Here. Jesus says something in, uh, when he's on the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5. He says something very, very powerful when he's, he's talking. In fact, I probably should read it rather than paraphrase it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. I already mentioned that, that the, this, uh, you know, how Jesus came. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. Well, here's where he says it. In chapter 5, Matthew, chapter, uh, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Moses or Elijah. <laughs> Keep that always, I hope you get that picture stuck there. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that's the, the beginning of eternity, folks. And until, you know, and not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. An iota is the smallest letter, okay, and they're out and they're in their writing. And the dot is, if you ever looked at Hebrew language, well, a lot of languages, they have dots and, and, and lines and stuff over the letters that bring different pronunciations and sometimes different meanings to a, to a word simply by changing the dot on a letter, he says, not one 
iota, not the smallest letter, and not a single dot is removed, is going to be done away with. Because if you move a, 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 or do away with any part of it, you've lost its meaning. I have some dear friends uh, you know, that, that are convinced that Paul is just a man who wrote. He wasn't an apostle. Therefore, everything that Paul wrote, you look at it as kind of take it with a grain of salt. It was just a man, single man at that, speaking. So uh, where he says anything about women, where he says anything about, yeah, yeah it was his opinion. Yeah. Somebody has taken in <laughs> several iotas, <laughs> you know, several letters, you know, they, they just turned around by, by doing that and said, yeah, yeah, we don't have to pay any attention to that part. Jesus says not one single piece, not one letter, not even a dot that emphasizes the way to pronounce the letter is allowed to be removed in the sense of its meaning and its power. Somebody say, well, with all the translations, we're talking about original. The word of God is given to the apostles, to the prophets. It's perfect. He also says here, it's not, you know, uh, and, and, until the heaven and earth pass away, uh, it's going to be with us. First um, Peter chapter one, uh, verse twenty-two. Uh, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. This grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The foundation, the word of God, remains forever. It, it, it's, it's permanent. <laughs> okay? It's not like, oh, uh, and, you know, well, there's people who don't look at the Old Testament. Well, we've just made it very clear that, that Peter, Paul, and all are in agreement that that's the word of God and that it's good for raising and building up and it's tied intricately together with Jesus. And Jesus says, I am here to fulfill this. In order to understand what Jesus has fulfilled, what do we have to do? We have to study the Old Testament, the word of God. Isaiah says something similar. Uh, and, you know, here he says, nature will fade away with, and, and wither, but God's word stands forever. Jesus began his ministry quoting scripture. When he had come back out, out of the wilderness, he uh, goes home to teach, you know, uh, basically. Uh, Jesus makes a very clear statement and he goes to the prophets to do it. In verse 18, he's speaking in Nazareth. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 60 verse, uh, 61 verse 1. Jesus starts his ministry by appealing to the scriptures. Why? Because they are the inspired God-breathed word. This is what God said would happen. I'm here doing it. Today in your presence, he goes on, this has been fulfilled. I'm he, the, the one that was speaking about. Their reaction was very negative. Go on and read what happened. What's interesting, if you just stay in the book of the Gospel of Luke and go to the, uh, to, to the end of the, the Gospel, Jesus uses Scripture to explain his ministry. And he's referring, interestingly enough, well, I'll read it to you. Uh, going to, to Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're, we're familiar with these verses, the, the, the men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them, and they're saying, hey, don't you know what's going on? And in the back and forth conversation, uh, they, were, they were saying, well, some of the women, you know, gosh, they said that he's, he's alive, but I can't figure it out. We were confused. And he says to them, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What's he referring to? Old Testament, prophets, Isaiah, you know, Zechariah, others. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, Elijah, starting with him, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. How important to Jesus to authenticate who he is was this scripture God breathed. It was essence. It was the foundational. He called on it over and over and over again. I guess what I'm trying to, to, to hope that you see this morning is that when we use the word prophet and prophecy, it, it cannot have a, a simple, just a loose application. And the foundation of the very foundation of the word is laid out for us as to its importance. I am sure that one of the scriptures that Jesus used with them I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not a prophet. <laughs> I am not the word, so I can't say that this is the one he used, but I could see how he would have, along with several others that are messianic prophecies referring to Jesus and what would happen to him. One of the most profound pictures of the suffering of Christ is found in the prophet Isaiah. And most of the time we say Isaiah 53, the, the chapter of the suffering servant. We miss three critical verses when we do that because the last three verses of chapter 52 are part of the picture. And I'd like to take you there this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion from this scripture. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance uh, and his form beyond that of all the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, you know, referring to Christ, he grew up before him like a, uh, a young plant or a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. You realize that picture of Jesus? He had no form or majesty that we should look on. Yet when they saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was all sorts of form and majesty. Okay? But as a man, Jesus looked like an, uh, a Jewish man, a Semitic person of his area, and he did not stand out in the crowd with blonde hair and blue eyes uh, and, and fair skin. He blended in. He was part of an ethnic group, and he looked like them. It says that, that he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from a man, one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers in silence. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for his, the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. I mean, he was to be buried in the, the, the unnamed burial grounds where people didn't have a marker, basically. And yet with a rich man in his death. He was supposed to be married in a, in a, buried in a, in, a, in a field with no name, so to speak, a potter's field. There's all sorts of names for those things. But he was married in a rich man. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he did not deserve this judgment that came on him. It was not his cause. He didn't bring the, the, and do what caused this judgment to fall that he was receiving. We did. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he, he has put him to grief. When, uh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of the, of, of the aftermath of all of this. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
All of this to say, he took on our sin. As a result, he is blessed with the, the, the inheritance that goes that he's even going to share that with us. Okay, there's one of the scriptures that he might have shared with the men on the right of the road to Emmaus. Psalm 22 is another. There's several others that would go in this category. But this one, I think, speaks to us this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion. The prophetic word of God before it ever happened, a good 750 years before it happened, was spoken very directly about the one who would be beaten and smitten and, and, and take on our judgment, referring to Jesus Christ. We come to communion this morning. We come to communion, hopefully, with a, a mixed set of, of feelings and emotions and responses. One of, of confession. Uh, confession of, of sins that we have committed, you know, and, 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 and asking for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're told we can boldly claim that before his throne. In other words, a broken heart, as David would put it, as we, bring, as we share in this as a living sacrifice, an offering to God. With thanksgiving for what he has done for us. With excitement, not just, oh, it's going to happen. It needs to start, it really needs to be excitement with the anticipation of what is yet to come. Not only every knee and every... Uh, uh, Tongue, bound, tongue confess. He'll finally get the glory that's due all his name. That should be a very important thing to us when we cry, Maranatha, come soon. Not so much to get out from underneath painful bodies and, 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 and depressed situations, but to realize what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, everyone's going to see, and he'll get the glory due his name. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. With thanksgiving also, knowing eternally what we have. All of that comes to communion. He says we're to share it as often as we gather together until he comes again. And we have that confidence because we see what he's already prophesied, what he's already stated through the, through the Moses and through the prophets, and what has come true. We can, we can see it, and then we have an empty tomb to rest in, in the sense of our assurity. Ask the ushers to come forward uh, to uh, pass the communion out. Hold it until we've all been served share it together.
what a very basic, simple picture. He's the lifter of our heads. Can you picture that just for a moment? The, the, you know, laying down when you get up, you roll, you get up, you, know, you get your head up, whatever. The, you know, he's, he's the one that gives you the strength. He's the one that holds you in the most sensitive area, all the things that go with that. He's the lifter of your head. He sustains you. He holds you. And also the idea of lifting someone's head is when they're broken, when they're wounded, when they're hurt, when they're grieving, when they don't know the answers. You know, parents lift the head of their child and cuddle it. That's all tied to that picture of lifting our head. We have that because of what he did. He sacrificed. He laid down his life. I love the reality of that picture too because nobody took it from him. They couldn't. There was no one capable of taking his life from him. He commanded the angels. Scripture says he could have had, you know, legions of angels come down, thousands of angels come down. I always say if, if, if two angels did Sodom and Gomorrah in the Valley of Zor, uh, you can imagine with the angels, plural, thousands of angels, you know, they'd, they'd have come to his rescue if he'd asked. But he laid down his life so that we could have life. So that the words in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, what is mortal, this, what is mortal is swallowed up by life. Jesus gave us the picture of the, the, the symbolic picture of, of, of bread and, and, and wine to remind us constantly of what he has done so that we might rest in him but also see him as the one who brings us our grace. He tells us if we've sinned, even as a believer, we're faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful to, to forgive us of our sins. All because he came in the flesh. And so he held up the bread after giving thanks and breaking it and gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup of wine and just gave it this very simple picture. He says, this is my blood poured out for you to purchase the covenant. So often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me until I come again. Let us do that. Father, again we come to the table, as we affectionately call it, Lord's Supper, Communion. Lord, with, a, with a, again a constant thought of thanksgiving, of what you have done what you are doing what is yet to be accomplished and, and what's exciting is we can go to your word and read what is yet ahead and Lord we can only grasp insight in a sense of, the, of, of as Paul says dimly even through your word I'm just, I know when we are there we're going to look the other way from this, in a sense, the other side of this. And we're going to just be so amazed, so in awe of what the God of all creation has done with us, through us, and for us. Thank you. We worship you in Jesus' name.